can open your Bibles with me once again to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. This morning we're going to be attempting to cover verses 4 through 6, Lord willing. And you'll notice if you look in the bulletin, I once again overshot a little bit. I thought we would get from verses verse 4 through verse 7. Um, but I'll trust the Lord with that, that. Verse 6 is as far as we need to go. And one good thing about John's Gospel, especially at this point, is how repetitive that he is and how often he brings up and dealing with this text, we're going to continue interacting with these different ideas. Before I have you stand for the reading, um, something that's been in my mind since David read the, the Old Testament Scripture from Jeremiah is that expression that he uses talking about He's facing all sorts of suffering. He's been beaten by other religious people. And he says, there is, if I don't speak your word, if I don't speak what God's told me to speak, it's like there's this fire shut up in my bones. And I cannot keep it in. And I can tell you in my own experience that as a preacher, that when God compels you with His word to say something, it is just that way as a fire in you that's got to get out. And I pray that the Lord would allow it to come forth as He would have it to today. And so before we begin, I'll ask you now to stand with me for the reading of God's Word if you're able. And we will read beginning at verse 1 of John 15 and we'll go ahead and read down through verse 6. John chapter 15 and verse 1. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to go with me once again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, what a text to have set before us. What a truth to be made aware of, even as one who would stand and seek to produce fruit in others and be fruitful for you, even in a public fashion in ministry, O oh God, to be reminded apart from you, we can do nothing. Well, Lord, I can do nothing. I pray that you would bless this time as we look into your word together. O oh God, that you would make yourself known to your people. O oh, Father, as in the days of old, when you moved mightily in the lives of your people and revivals came and the nations were shaken by your hand. O oh, God, would you do that now? There is no lacking in you, preventing you from doing those things once again. Father, we do not come with presumption, but we do come with expectation. And I ask that you would meet with us now. Oh God, guard me from misspeaking. Continue the work of pruning us and producing fruit in us and teach us, oh God, what it means to abide in your Son. Father, I ask these things in his name. Amen. By way of introduction, last week we saw the first three verses of John 15. And the first thing we looked at was Jesus saying He was the true vine. You remember we saw that that means there are false vines. 
false Christs, antichrists, deceivers, and that Jesus is the one true vine, the one place that you have life and nourishment, vitality. And then he said, my father's the vine dresser. We saw God the Father's direct and immediate role in working in this vineyard. The second verse, we saw that every branch in me does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And we considered there is a severe danger to those who are not bearing fruit, but identifying themselves as Christians. And then on the other side of that verse, we saw Jesus is promising that God is going to prune those who are His. And we considered that pruning process of sanctification and how God disciplines us and cuts things off of us that are hindering our fruit bearing. And then we saw gloriously, Jesus said, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And we are reminded that no amount of fruit bearing in your life is ever going to save you. You're not justified before God because of anything that you do. You're clean by the word of Christ and what he accomplished. And that was a brief summary of our message from last week. We pick up today in verse four and we read this. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I believe in these eight or ten verses here, the word abide shows up about 17 times. This is the significant focus of these scriptures we're in, is abide in me. The first thing I ask is what does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean to say abide? What is Jesus telling them to do? What is he telling us to do when he says abide in me? I suppose you could reduce the entire Christian life down to this one expression. Everything that you hope for as a believer, everything that you strive after, and everything God commands you to do as a scripture, as a Christian in the scriptures, is summarized in this abide in Jesus Christ. And so the question comes if abiding in Christ is such a central and a necessary and vital part of what we're supposed to be doing, what does it mean? To abide in Him. What does it mean to abide in Christ? The word abide most simply means to remain with or alongside. So a fitting application to the disciples here in our text, as well as ourselves, is that they would continue with Him. But what does it mean to continue with Christ or to remain with Christ? Matthew 24 verse 13 says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying, abide in me. Remain with me. Stay with me. Don't depart from me. Don't leave me. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. This means that those who come to Christ, at least they appear to come to Christ, but not truly, for a season, and then fall away, will not be saved. Only those who endure to the end will be saved. And Jesus is saying, abide, remain with me. Now, here's an important point. Baptists historically have believed in a doctrinal truth called the perseverance of the saints. And in some churches, they've reduced that down to this expression, once saved, always saved. And I want you to know something, that the Scriptures teach that those who are in Christ, who are believing in Him, are secure and they cannot be lost. But the idea of the perseverance of the saints, that we persevere to the end, means that we remain, we abide, we stay with Christ to the end. It's not I jumped out of the line going to hell into the line going into heaven and now I'm going to do whatever. And my relationship daily with Christ doesn't matter. The doctrine of our perseverance means that we persevere, we continue with Him. He says, abide in me. How important is it that you abide in Christ? How necessary is it that you're found in Him? If you do not abide in Christ, you will demonstrate that you are not a child of God. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
Verses 4 through 9, and he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When I'm telling you, Jesus says, abide in me. It is our living connection. That's what it is. This abiding, remaining with Christ. It's a living thing. Remaining with Christ, abiding in Him. That is what allows us, you and I, to look forward confidently to being found guiltless. Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you, that's an ongoing process of being sustained by Jesus. And that's the source of our confidence as we look to being found blameless, guiltless on the day of judgment. If you're not abiding in Christ, you will not be found guiltless on that day. This is how important this is, that you're remaining in with Christ. He says, abide in me and I in you. Now, it's important for us to realize at this point that Jesus is not merely telling the disciples to remember what's true about him. And that's what we might often think. You might think, what does it mean to abide in Christ? You might think, well, just to remember the gospel, to remember what's true. That's how I abide in Christ. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. Remember that Jesus is telling them something in relationship to all he's been promising to them about coming to. He's talking to them about what it's going to look like for them and him to abide together. We saw even just from John 14, several scriptures about this. It's not just an enduring commitment to orthodox truth. And how many people think that the way I'm to abide with Christ, that just means that I'm going to remember what's true. Remember what our confession says. Remember what the, the scriptures say. Even It is possible for you to spend your entire life in agreement with Jesus words and never know him personally. And we have evidence of those who do just that in the scriptures. They say, I, I believe or I agree, but they don't abide. They don't remain and they're not. Knowing they don't know his presence in their life. This command to abide, this is the context that it comes in. John 14, 18, we saw this. Jesus said, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You see, this is more than just, just remembering something. This is a, a known and experienced presence of God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's telling you. This abiding, it's relational. Abide in me and I in you. There's something going on of a relationship here. In verse 20 of John 14, he said, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Isn't that exactly what he's saying? Abide in me and I in you. John 14, he said, In that day you're going to know that I'm in the Father, and you're in me, and I in you. In verse 21, he said in John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be with will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see, Jesus has been saying all leading up to this in John, John 15, all through John 14, he's telling us there's going to be an experience you have with me after I die and I'm resurrected and I go to be with the father. You're going to know something about me in your life. It's not just knowing truth. You're going to know my presence I'm going to manifest myself to you. And the promise we're given here in John 14, 4 is that everyone who's abiding or remaining in Christ, Jesus says he will abide or remain in them. That means we're not left to just aimlessly wander through our lives as Christians, wondering whether or not we're going to have Christ in our life, whether he's with us or not. And some of you perhaps are very uncomfortable right now because much of your experience perhaps is that you don't have a sure and confident awareness of Jesus Christ with you in your life. 
And if you don't, let me suggest to you as a Christian, as a believer, that God, he promises in John 15, he promises to us he's going to prune us. He's going to cut things off. If you're not longing for and yearning for this presence of Christ, perhaps part of the father's pruning to you is bringing to your mind and awareness that you're not experiencing this, that you might long for it, pray for it, seek it. that You might abide in him. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Is that not what it sounds like Jesus is saying? Abide in me and I in you. You see, if your heart is filled with doubt or despair, know this. The only thing, the only thing that's keeping you from experiencing the love and presence of God in Jesus Christ in your own life is your unwillingness to draw near to him. He says, abide in me. And I in you. The next part of verse four, he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus has been making it very plain to us that God's heart to his people is that we would know His love and affection. Do you recall in recent weeks how much of an emphasis has been continually placed on the love of God? Understanding it not in a flippant way, not in a a postmodern way where we look at God's love as though it were reduced to our love. That's flippant and, and just only limited to an emotional feeling and devoid of justice and righteousness. But we see the emphasis is on a just and righteous and holy love of God. That's been his focus. We've been seeing that. We're going to go on seeing that. That Jesus' primary focus is to reveal the love of God in order that we might display that love to others. As a matter of fact, if you look forward, even in our text in John 15, Jesus, after talking about these things of abiding in him, he says in verse nine, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. But then he goes on. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he goes on. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You see this, this focus on love. And that being said, we're reminded in our text that God's priority in revealing his love to us is not separated or detached from his purpose and producing fruit in us. Do you follow me? God's purpose, his priority is that you would know his love. And that is in no way separated from the, the, the need, the necessity of fruit being born in your life. As a matter of fact, you could say it this way. Part of God's love for you is that he's going to produce fruit in you. He's going to work. He loves you so much that he's willing to do what it takes to produce fruit in you as one of his branches. You see, Jesus says in verse one of our text, my father is the vine dresser. He's he's got a priority in producing fruit in us. It says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Our abiding in Christ, our knowing his presence in our life has a conjunctive purpose in it, which is producing righteous fruit in us. Do you get what I'm saying? It'd be easy to hear this, abide in me. And I'm talking about it, knowing the presence of Jesus Christ in my life in a relational way. And for us to think that's primarily or solely that we would have that relationship with him. And I suppose it's right to say that is the primary purpose in it. But there is another thing being wrought in you. Not only are you knowing Christ and his presence and producing in you a a knowledge of God's love and affection. But that's stirring and producing in you fruit, righteous fruit to the Father's glory. You see, there does seem to me to be two primary errors within professing Christianity with regard to this idea of Christian fruit bearing. The first error or primary error, I would say, with regard to Christian fruit bearing is described as either nominal or carnal Christianity. Nominal or carnal Christianity, which is often marked by liberalism and antinomianism. Do you know those words? Liberalism, a a 
going away from that which has been revealed to be true and right and departing from that which has been held on to for so long because of the truth of God's word. And then this antinomian, that's antinomian, that's no law, basically a disregard entirely for God's law and a disregard for pursuing righteousness and holiness in a practical way. The groups that make up this kind of thinking almost completely disregard the sin in a professing Christian's life. And they're happy to pronounce someone as a Christian just in order to maybe add them to their church roles or when they come to preach their funerals. They were a Christian with no interest or concern about whether the person lived according to God's Word. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, just to give the context of that, all throughout Romans leading up to chapter 6, Paul has been making it clear, you are not righteous according to the law. You cannot save yourself according to the law. It's only by grace, only by grace. That's his point all through this. It's by faith alone. And he gets to chapter 6 and, okay, you can't be righteous. Okay, so it doesn't matter, right? Paul says, no, no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you have died to sin, you're not going to be okay continuing to live in it is his point. And if a person continues to live in sin, it's because they haven't died to it. It's because they haven't been born again. They haven't been saved. That's what he's saying. So that's the first error. People hear about fruit bearing in your life and they think, God oh, doesn't matter. The second primary error, and this is the one more likely to affect us here, I believe, is described as a self-righteous legalism, which you'll see oftentimes will be marked by a rigid commitment to law-keeping and external restraints. And there are many among those who take the commands of God seriously. Do we not here take the commands of God's word seriously? When God speaks, we're supposed to listen and we're supposed to obey what he says. And we know that's right here. And many people of a like mind have somehow convinced themselves that they can be righteous in the flesh if they only try hard enough. Are you guilty of this here today as a Christian? Are you guilty of trying in your flesh to please God? If you say no, check yourself. We're all guilty of this at some level. Galatians 3.3, Paul says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by the Spirit, he's saying your flesh and your, your attitude or your attempts to try to be saved availed nothing for you. It was the Spirit who saved you. Not you, not your will, not your righteousness. The Spirit saved you. Well now, how many people think, well, it's the Holy Spirit who saved me, but now that I'm a Christian, it's up to me to produce fruit in my life. I've got to be the one in charge of my own sanctification. That's how so many people think. And Paul so evidently and clearly says, you are foolish if you think that you're going to continue your sanctification without the work of the Holy Spirit being the one to produce it in you. My question is, what do we say to these things? How is Jesus, how does He deal with this? We obviously see that law-keeping or righteous living does matter to the Christian. It's something we ought to be concerned about. Growing in holiness and obedience to God. And according to Jesus, this bearing of fruit is of the utmost importance. And he says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in you, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The first part of this, I am the vine, you are the branches, once again, Jesus indicates to us the personal, living, and necessary abiding relationship that His followers must have with Him. Has that been an often repeated thought here in recent months? 
This living relationship with Jesus where we know Him in our lives and we have a relationship with Him that's actually alive. It's vital. It's not just in word only. He says, I am the vine. He's saying, as the vine, the source of life to the branch comes from me. That's what He's telling you. An easy way. I mean, you might think that's a repeated thought. And if so, I'm thankful because it is a repeated thought in John. And here's something that occurs to me anytime I'm reading and I see repeated themes begin to come forth. It ought to remind me, it ought to demonstrate to me this is something God is stressing to me, something he really wants me to know and remember and take to heart. And you could say to me, I know that I need this kind of relationship, vine branch with Jesus. I know that I have that and I know that I need it. Well, you're here and you're hearing it again, which tells me that God wants you to hear it again and to meditate on it and not assume it and to not take it for granted. What life would you expect to find? Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. What life do you expect to find in a tree branch laying in the middle of the road? What kind of vitality, what kind of usefulness or activity would you expect to find if you saw a human finger separated from its body? If there were a finger set before you on this table, would that not produce in you this kind of grotesque and morbid and gruesome notion? You would become maybe sick to your stomach if I held up somebody's arm in front of you. Why? Because the thing's dead. It's dead. We find it grotesque. My question is, how much more ought we to be horrified by the thought of any of Christ's blood-bought followers being separated from Him? If you see one, of, one person who says, I'm a branch, I'm a follower of Jesus, but they're not abiding, they're not connected to Him in a living way, with the sap flowing from the vine to the branch producing fruit, if you see that, Surely it ought to bother us every bit as much as seeing that severed body part. And the interesting thing, and I like the body analogy and it's used in the scriptures, is that the only thing a limb, a finger, a hand, an arm, an ear, the only thing it can do if it's separated from its body is stink, rot, and deter people from coming near it. And that's the way Christian or professing Christians are towards other people in the world. If you're not abiding in Christ, if you're separated from Him, the only that's the impact you're going to have. People are going to see you as one who professes faith and doesn't live and produce fruit, and it's going to deter them. It's going to detract from any testimony or witness that you might have. That's the impact. There's a living and an abiding and fruit-producing relationship with Jesus. And not only... Not only are we separated from a confident assurance of God's love for us. See, that's that's the first thing. That's the initial thing. If you're not abiding in Christ, you have no confidence, no true or biblical, biblically based confidence of God's love for you. And not only when you're disconnected, do you feel a sense that you lose the sense of the presence and power of God. But when you don't abide, when you're not abiding in Christ, you're unable to produce the fruit which God has declared His people are to produce. At this point, let me say this. We're going to go to great lengths from this pulpit to constantly remind you of one primary truth that you, in and of yourself, according to the law, cannot be righteous. You can't be saved. You can't deliver yourself. If you die trusting that, you're going to go to hell. And we're going to say it over and over and over again. Don't measure your relationship to God by what you can do. And yet, the Scripture tells you and is telling you, Jesus is telling you that if you have no real interest, no burden to produce fruit for God, you are not a Christian. If your sin doesn't bother you, if your lack of fruit doesn't bother you, you're not one of His Now, I'm not saying that you have a perfect 100% of the time awareness of your sin and you're constantly mourning over it all of your life and that you never have weeks or even months where you don't have this great sensitivity to your failings. Surely that happens to us all. But is there a concern about the fruit you're producing? 
The next thing I want to consider with you in light of these verses is what is the fruit that we're meant to produce and how is it that we're supposed to produce it? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You know, our our ladies have been recently going through the fruits of the Spirit. And many Christians, when they hear the word fruit, they think about the fruits of the Spirit. And that's good. That's right. It's appropriate. But let me suggest to you in our text here today that the fruit Jesus is describing has, is a little bit different than that. It's not separated from it, but let me just read from Galatians 5, and 23 and then return to that thought. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, those are certainly related to the fruit Jesus is talking about. But his primary focus, the fruit Jesus is describing, is meant to be measured and observed to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that in the text? As a matter of fact, if you just look forward to verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see, he's talking about something observable. And if you'll notice those fruits of the Spirit, at least their inward application is not necessarily observable. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those things originate inside. And they're not necessarily measurable. But Jesus is saying this fruit that's supposed to be in you is going to be able to be seen. It's going to be measured and it's going to glorify God. Now somebody may hear that, especially in our society and culture, and say, wait a minute. You can't judge me. You can't just look at my life, observe my life and look for fruit. Well, let's look again to a well-known scripture, I'm sure, in our church at Matthew 7. And let this sink in and don't don't just listen to these things as though there should be no cause for concern in you or perhaps your children or your grandchildren. Listen to these things. Matthew 7, begin reading with me at verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, somebody might read that and say, well, it's not talking about individual people. He says, beware of false prophets. This is bad preachers. This isn't necessarily people. You're not supposed to judge. Yeah, everybody, everybody wants to judge the preachers. But what about individual people? Are we allowed to do that? Well, keep reading. Verse 21, Jesus continues that same idea about people, false prophets, people who say one thing about themselves, but it's not true. They present themselves as a sheep, but they're actually a wolf. They're hypocrites. Verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Ah, see here, we're not only talking about false prophets. We're talking about people who profess that Jesus is their Lord. And he says, not everyone who says that's going to be in heaven, but the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And what's interesting is these false professors in Matthew chapter seven, they're appealing to fruit. They're saying, look, there's fruit. Isn't that what we're being told? There must be fruit. The question is, what is that fruit that Jesus is talking about? Evidently, it's not just only limited to saying Jesus is Lord, doing some sort of prophetic utterance, casting out demons, miracles, mighty works. What is the fruit that Jesus is describing? You know, we cannot produce any real an emphasis on the word real or true. We cannot produce any true 
external observable fruit unless we have an internal spirit wrought fruit in our souls. But if the Spirit of God is producing the fruits of the Spirit in your heart, it will have an observable expression of fruit in the way you live. And that's that you see the things are not detached, they're not separated. I wasn't saying to you, Jesus is not concerned or he's not talking about the fruits of the Spirit. He is, but he's saying these fruits are going to be observed in you. I believe it's John MacArthur who suggests even further that the fruit described here is going to result in the fruit is conversions of other people according to this demonstration of God in your life. Perhaps it is. And at this point, there is one interesting and significant thing I'd like to suggest to you in light of our verses last week. You remember last week we saw this, that it is God the Father who is the vine dresser. And how the Father, as the vine dresser, is going to prune His people in order to produce more fruit in them. And then here we're seeing that the fruit that's produced in us by abiding in Christ. See, the Father says, I'm going to prune you in order to produce fruit in you. Jesus says, you can't have fruit apart from Me. Okay, what does that tell you? Abide in Me to have this fruit. Well, that tells us this. That all of God the Father's work in pruning us is meant to produce in us a deeper and abiding connection to Jesus Christ. If the Father's pruning you, if He's highlighting areas of sin or neglect in your life, and that drives you to law-keeping, that's not the Father's purpose in pruning you. The Father says, I'm, He says, I'm going to prune you to produce fruit. Jesus says, fruit comes from abiding in Me. That tells me, the Father, when He's pruning me, He's saying, look to My Son. Abide in My Son. That's where He's driving you. And that's encouraging, isn't it? It's encouraging. We ought to strive to see God's pruning hand as primarily being meant to drive us to Jesus Christ. If you don't come to Him first, whatever apparent fruit results is going to be in vain. And He tells us as much in verse 5, the end of it. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. Well, what does that mean? You know, there are many things you, you can do apart from Jesus Christ. And I'm not contradicting him here. There are many things that you can do without Jesus. You can sin apart from Jesus. You can sin without abiding in Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you're not abiding in Jesus, that's all you're doing is sin. You can die without abiding in Jesus. So there are things you can do without him. So what does he mean when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing? Sounds pretty explicit to me. Well, in the context, he's clearly saying, apart from me, you cannot produce fruit. You can't produce the fruit I'm talking about without or apart from abiding in me. And this is as clear a statement as you're ever going to find concerning man's inability to please God. And it applies both to the lost person and to the Christian. To the lost Apart from Jesus Christ, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing to please God. No amount of striving or religious activity or praying or anything you do is truly righteous in the eyes of God. Romans 3, just listen to this. Listen to it again and take this in. Christian, hear these things and be reminded of the grace of God in your life. Lost person here today with us? Hear these things and let the, let the Word of God rest upon you and drive you to the vine. He says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have sinned. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know 
that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And keep in mind, this is coming in the context of abiding in him. This means you're not only being called to agree with something Jesus said. You're not even being called necessarily to only agree with something I tell you about Jesus. I could tell you Jesus died on the cross for sinners and you can say, I agree with you. That doesn't mean you're abiding in him. He's saying apart from me, apart from abiding in me, you can do nothing. Apart from a real and living relationship with Jesus Christ as a lost person, you can do nothing. What up to the Christian? To the saved apart from Jesus Christ. And this is the emphasis, by the way, to the saved, to the Christians, apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing to please God. And so many Christians, it seems, are trying to live their lives in such a way to please God. And they're just on an emotional roller coaster, just like this, up and down. They have a good day. They wake up, they pray, they have their quiet time, they study the scriptures, they love their spouse, and they feel like God is with them and God loves them. The next day they wake up late. They forget to do their quiet time. They growl at their wife. And all of a sudden, God doesn't love me anymore. I've fallen out of favor with God. And the days that you feel like you've done well, when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The days you feel like I've really done well today, it's not your righteousness and it's not your goodness that God is pleased in. He's pleased in His Son. He's pleased in Jesus Christ and His righteousness for you. The days when you failed miserably, the Father is pleased in His Son's righteousness for you. What Jesus is saying, apart from me, you can do nothing, is that on a practical level concerning observable fruit that we're meant to bear, that apart from a felt and experiential abiding in Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. This means that every ounce of growth in your sanctification and your obedience to God is entirely dependent on the ongoing work of God in you. You follow me? Everything in your life, every act of obedience, every pure thought that you ever hope to have is going to come from your connection to this vine. That's where it comes from. Nothing else. It's not even as if, and we sometimes think this way, that, that, that God, when He saved us, He's made me a new creature, and I have something within me now that's actually righteous and good, as if there was something in me that was separated from Jesus. It's His life at work in me. It's my connection to Him that's producing the fruit. Philippians chapter 2, chapter two verses 12 through 13. Paul tells the Philippian church, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's Paul saying there? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds like you've got some things to do, huh? Work it out. Oh yeah, by the way, the reason that you ought to have fear and trembling is because if there's not if God's not working in you, if you don't see God at work in you, then you're probably not you're not saved if God's not working in you. He's saying work out your salvation with fear and trembling because those whom God has saved, he's working in. And it's his working in you not only to do, but the very will to try to please God is a gift from God. If you have a desire in your soul to please God, God put it there. We're dependent on Him entirely. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, there are many good things that God has provided to us as a means to grow in our knowledge of Him. But not one of them is the true vine which produces real fruit in the Christian's life. You know, God has given us many good things. Church activity, small groups, Bible studies, homeschooling, family devotions, evangelism, tithing, many wonderful things that cause us to think about God. Even our prayers, they cause us to think on God and they can be a very helpful thing. Not one of them 
is what produces fruit in you. Because you can do all of those things and not have fruit. And this is something I heard another man, another preacher, former pastor of mine say recently in a sermon that he preached years ago on this very text. Jesus alone is the vine. He's the only one that produces fruit in the branches. It's Jesus. He's the one producing fruit in you. And so when we look at those things, those good things that I described, they're only as good as they consistently and urgently deliver us to the feet of Christ to abide in Him. What's the purpose of your small group? To lift your gaze back to the Son of God that you be abiding in Him. That you know His presence in your life. What's the benefit in us gathering even for worship together? That we would know and abide in Christ and know His presence in a relationship to Him. Everything. But how easy is it to take these wonderfully good things and begin looking to them as though they were what's going to produce the fruit in you. You look at those things as if they're what produces fruit. And you make it impersonal. And you give yourself a checklist of things to do to try to make yourself more righteous rather than going to Him, the source of all righteousness. He is the source of our salvation, our growth in sanctification, and our ultimate glorification. So then we come to ask a final question. What then awaits those who never come to abide in Him? What of those who appear to trust Him now but don't remain relationally and intimately and knowingly connected to Jesus? Verse 6, He tells us, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. See a parallel of thought there from Jesus' words in Matthew 7? Those fruitless or bad fruit-bearing trees in Matthew 7 were cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus says those not, that don't abide in Me, those who don't remain connected. Now here's the point, a very important point. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. He says if anyone does not abide in Me, he's like a branch and withers. He's thrown away like a branch and withers. Here's the point. You could take this Scripture and you could imagine that a Christian could lose their salvation. Jesus is talking about branches. Well, if they're connected to Him and then they're cut off, you see, that's not what He's saying. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. The same Jesus said that any who come to Me, I'll not cast out. And I'm going to raise them up on the last day we saw back in John 6. There's none of His that will be lost. The point is that there are those who say they're His, but they're lying. And they're going to be thrown into the fire and burned. That's the point. You know, there's no peace, no consolation, no benefit whatsoever in being accepted as a Christian before men now, only to be gathered and thrown into the fire in eternity. And there is a day coming when the earth will be pruned in a great and terrible pruning. You see, God's going to be he's going to be glorified in the destruction of every fruitless branch, every branch that does not bear fruit. And part of me wants to say, I take no pleasure in this. And yet I'm pleased that God will be glorified. Every fruitless branch will be destroyed by fire by God. It's going to happen. And I don't. I don't say this in order to try to necessarily scare you into making a decision for Jesus. But here's the point. The motivation for every Christian person to abide in Christ is not some morbid fear that you might be thrown into the fire. If you're trusting Christ, you know it's not your works. If you're a Christian, you know you haven't saved yourself. We pursue Christ because we have been made to see who He is and His goodness to us. And one of the chiefest ways we see the goodness of God in Christ is that we see that judgment, that wrath and fury and justice that, de that we deserve to have come upon us was upon Him. We see His cross and the love of God there. We have a knowledge of these things. And it's not a, a fear of wrath necessarily that drives us to Christ. It's a knowledge of the judgment of God that we deserve and the love of God in Christ that woos and softens our heart. Sister, you said it this morning. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And God's kindness is set before you even now. That there is an abiding relationship with Jesus set before you that you may have. And the only thing keeping you from it is your own unwillingness to have it. 
Jesus told the Jews in John earlier, you will not come to me that you might have life. You will not. You, you won't come. God has set the truth before you of his goodness and glory and the comfort of what he has accomplished in his son. The knowledge of this judgment ought to cause every unbelieving fruitless branch to see the goodness of God in Christ. Today, while it's still day, while it is yet day, the scripture puts it, that they too might be led to repentance. Led to repent of their sin and believe in the gospel that Jesus has been proclaiming concerning himself. But to Christian people, I pray that every one of us as members in this church, every believing person here, that we would see God's purpose in sanctifying you is going to only ever ultimately come from your connection to Jesus. That's it. I don't care how outwardly religious or righteous you may look, how many good things you think you're doing. It must be flowing out of your connection to Jesus Christ. For He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. And so to close, let me ask again, what does it mean to abide in Him? Because you may be sitting there thinking, well, okay, that sounds great, but how is it that I actually do that? How is it that I actually abide in Christ? I mean, it's a pretty straightforward question. The answer I'll give you is this. Jesus promised His Holy Spirit. And the same Holy Spirit that is promised in your Scriptures is the same one who inspired men to write this book. And the, the needful thing, Jesus is going on in the coming verses to say, if you abide in Me and My words abide in you. He's going to tell us these things. But here's the point. Abiding in Christ is not a cold, dead, dry, external only awareness of the Word of God. It is a spirit wrought understanding of Christ in His Word and the presence of Christ made known to you in His Word and in your life in an experiential way. That is what our pursuit must be. And I trust that God will be faithful. Jesus has promised these things to us if we are His. So with that, I will ask you now to bow with me and we'll be closed in prayer. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, I pray that You will do Your work according to Your purpose through Your Word and in Your people. We are desperately and urgently dependent on You. O oh God, I thank You for Your glory, for Your grace and Your goodness. And I ask that You would Keep these things in our minds and stir us up to pursue you with passion and diligence, earnestness. And we might abide in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.